In the 2003 SDCF symposium panel entitled Digital Media, a group of artists examined how new technology and media are enhancing theatrical productions and discuss how theaters can utilize these technologies within the scope of their budgets. The discussion is moderated by Arthur Bartow. The following program is a recording of the conversation that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director Daniel Sullivan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. panel members who be uh, who really created this process because this is about process as much as it is technology I'm not going to go into any depth on their bios since you have that in your program and that's unnecessary first of all the playwright of the project Steve Druckmann um, Steve uh, I think one of the things that's important about this process is that all of these people have had if not a long association with the department a significant enough association so that everybody knew where the bodies were buried. Everybody knew what the limita- current limitations of the department were so that they could work within that work quickly and as a result greatly expanded uh, the resources of the department and of what was possible because they knew what was possible and therefore could work from that base. Steve uh, started as an adjunct faculty for us uh, you know him from his writings uh, through American Theatre Magazine. Um, he is now a playwright and a full-time faculty member of the undergraduate drama department, which we're pleased about. Our director of the project, Fritz Ertl. Fritz, again, started as an adjunct. He became managing director of the program for a number of years and then segued to teaching directing at Playwrights Horizons Theatre uh, school, which is a collaborative studio of the undergraduate drama program. Next to him, Chris Janig, who is Associate Artistic Director, Head of Production for our main stage productions. He is, in essence, the producing director of all of our programs and the creator and founder of our technical production track and studio, so that he has total control over space and technology in the program. Tom Igo who is our designer, technological designer on this project, and who came from another department within TISH, ITP, Interactive Telecommunications Program. And uh, Meg Bezart, Bezart? Bezdex. Bezdex, excuse me, who's a fourth year stage management student and design student in uh, our program and who has stage managed many of our main stage productions and who's rather extraordinary. Um, somewhat over a year ago, Fritz Ertl came to me and said, I have this idea for a process and a project. Why don't we commission Steve Druckmann to write a play for our students? We have trouble finding material for actors 25 and under and for with a majority of roles for women and plays that are on the kinds of themes and uh, uh, 
of interest to us in the program and to the nation right at this moment. He was going to, uh, Fritz was going to uh, cast a, a group of 10 or 12 actors, do workshops, Steve would come in and write a play. I thought that was a great idea, but our program was set, season was set, so I asked if it could be delayed through the following year. As I thought about it, I realized that Steve is getting hot as a playwright. He was getting ready to, uh, preparing to open Long Wharf Theater uh, season uh, last fall, and I was afraid that Steve would get so popular and so successful that he wouldn't have time to write a play for us. So I bumped somebody else who was going to direct for us next year, and, uh, and I said, yes, let's go for it. The next problem was that the slot that we had open for this project was one with basically no money. Uh, it was our, our almost workshop level production, even though it was a main stage, because we had to balance the budget for the season. And, and so Fritz had that to contend with as well as he started this process. Um, and at this point, I'll turn it over to Fritz to talk about his process and Steve's process. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, the genesis of this project uh, uh, was, was September 11th. Uh, it was, uh, wasn't so much our reaction to September 11th. Uh, by, and when I say ours, I mean uh, myself, Stephen, and uh, a person who's missing from this uh, conversation is Ayuna Chowdhury, who was our uh, dramaturg and was very much part of the process from the beginning. But uh, uh, it was, the project was really very much our reaction to America's reaction to September 11th. Uh, uh, Stephen and Ayuna and, uh, and myself were all uh, astounded at, at how, how quickly and how thoroughly America uh, uh, had created a very simple point of view on what 9-11 uh, meant, uh, with very little room for argument, very little room for debate, very, very little for question. Uh, uh, and that, that got us to thinking about, uh, reminding us of something we all knew, but it just, it just became so important to us suddenly, uh, at how effective America is at uh, projecting itself and its empire and its culture and its point of view uh, and, and controlling world opinion and certainly the, the opinion of its, of its citizens in relation to that. Uh, not through any great, you know, coercive activities, but, but because it's so charming. It's so beautiful. It's so alluring. Uh, uh, and that led us to ask a question, which is, you know, can, is it possible to resist this charming, alluring empire? Uh, uh, at any level, and at every level, uh, as a citizen, uh, as, a, as a citizen of another country, uh, uh, we began to ask the question if it was possible to resist America. Uh, and as we spoke to students, uh, they, had, they, they had the exact same question. They kept looking to us, hey, you who lived through the 60s, tell us, can, is it possible to resist America? Why, why do we feel we can? And, and they had all felt, as we talked to so many of them, they felt that um, uh, for the first 18, 19 years of their lives, before 9-11, they, 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 they had succeeded in uh, sort of having their cake and eat it too. They could sort of sup at the table of American pop culture, uh, sort of partake in the worst part of America, and yet at the same time keep this sort of ironic remove and realize that they were above it and beyond it and, and, and you know, not, not really a part of it. And after 9-11, they began to really question whether that was possible and whether that maybe they'd been fooled, that even that had been sort of fed to them, that idea, that notion itself had been fed to them. Uh, uh, so we went, we, you know, we went into uh, uh, 
when this, the school year commenced in September, we cast as Arthur said a company of ten uh, kids, students, uh, uh, and conducted a two-week workshop in, w in which we really just asked the question, you know, uh, what is resistance, and is it possible to resist uh, this this extraordinary world power? Uh, how did that came to play? Yeah, Steve, before I go on, do you want to, do you want to talk to somebody? Well, uh, some of the things, the themes that kept emerging in this two-week workshop, first of all, the, the, the first day of rehearsal was September 11, 2000, the year anniversary. And I remember after sort of hashing out with these students the fact that we couldn't uh, avoid the, the kind of jingoism that, that uh, was attached to the event of September 11, that that day on the way to rehearsal, I couldn't avoid all the memorialization. I mean, whether because I live off of Fifth Avenue and uh, I went to the gym, it was on the television sets there, uh, and we tried to find a our own sort of resistant uh, way of uh, memorializing September 11th. And I remember suggesting the idea of what I think Bush named it Freedom Day or Liberty Day. I can't. Patriots Day. Patriots Day. Sorry. Uh, and I said, well, what if we what if we called it Day of the Dead? What is it about our culture that resists the idea of the life cycle and dying? Uh, and the theme of death, of uh, sort of hyper-mediatized, over-technologized uh, world. And so the avoidance of death, sort of married with uh, technology, came to sort of arose out of the bubbles. And, and that became the theme. It became the world of the play. The play. Uh, took place in a place called Our World, letter R, uh, that was a, a sort of quasi-theme park, very much like the World's Fair, but was run with the, the sort of American view of what uh, the rest of the world should look like. Uh, so it was a supposedly international world, but it was completely filtered through uh, an American view. And what we Keep sure. What we learn is that uh, there's this nefarious plot to clone these 18 to 21 year olds and keep them cryogenically, both cryogenically frozen and clone them. So there's this permanent crop of youth. Uh, that was another thing that, that kept popping up was that part of America's power in seducing people away from uh, resisting is that they market so much to the youth that it, it almost seems like you'll, you'll never get old. Um, so uh, that was the world, that was our world uh, that uh, became the world of youth in Asia. Uh, Asia was this pocket of our world where, where, where these actors could uh, resist the uh, Americanization of the globe. Why? Why Asia? Yeah. Um, well, part of it was a, a uh, play on words of, of there being youth and youth in Asia, uh, and this sort of self-euthanizing as a way of, of resisting, because the ultimate uh, form of resistance in this world would be uh, death, uh, to actually acknowledge death. And uh, that turns out to be what the, these, uh, the world of this play, these, these kids do. Uh, they but wasn't there something about the continent of Asia itself? Well, because it's undeveloped. Right. That allowed for this kind of almost freedom. 
to revolt because nobody cared. Right. In, in our world, there, uh, the, A the Asian section of our world, of this theme park, was underdeveloped. It, had, it didn't have the latest technology. And it seemed th these students believed falsely or, or, you know, depending on your point of view, correctly, that that was the only way to <coughs> resist the sort of hyper-mediatized Americanization of the world, to kind of establish this uh, cordon sanitaire around uh, them and insulate themselves from, uh, from technology. And it just happened to be in this theme park that Asia, those were the, that, that was where uh, the tentacles of uh, the American media hadn't reached yet. Which, we, as we know, isn't really true. I mean, there is, uh, Asia has also been infiltrated by Americanization. So I think from a, from a technological standpoint, we're, 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 we're getting close to the, to the show here, folks. Uh, we just want to give you enough background information. From a te technological standpoint, what you have then is uh, a world that is twice mediated, right? Uh, you have a portrayal, essentially, of America as a theme park, our world, Toys R Us, our world. Uh, uh, and something that Steve failed to mention was that the show itself, the way it's part of the conceit of the plot, is that the audience is actually has logged on to their computer and is watching a virtual, it's taking a virtual tour of this theme park. So, you know, you've got a, a virtual tour of a theme park. So, you know, it's a, it's a twice-mediated world, which really helps create this sense of, uh, of this, this, you know, this box of, of, of uh, uh, America being this, this cultural box that we're just stuck with it, that we can't get out, that we can't see outside of. Uh, uh, and like Steve said, into this world are brought these uh, these kids who are the actors in the shows. Uh, you know, they, they act out the shows in Belgium, in uh, New Zealand, etc. And as uh, Steve explained, they, uh, uh, the nefarious plot of the, of the leaders of this world uh, who are trying to cryogenically freeze and clone them so that they will have a crop of young kids to forever buy Nike sneakers. Uh, 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 yeah, to, 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 uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> and then, maybe I've gone there. Maybe, maybe I've gone there. But, and they discovered this. Oh, that's, that's where I was going. Yes, they then discover this plot, you know, and and they just like the students in the workshop uh, began to begin to ask the question: How do we resist our world? Uh, uh, and they discover. Uh, first, they discovered something that we, we or, or, or I'll speak for myself here, I, I found very comforting in, in, our, in our workshop about resistance, was that that resistance is in the mind, you know. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be political or demonstrative. Uh, that perhaps something like Dada, uh, the Situationists in Paris in the 60s, uh, punk rock, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of a different way of looking at the world in itself as a form of resistance. Uh, but then the logic of the play being as it is, where uh, all of these students, it was ultimately about the body, right? The, 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 our world is trying to control the bodies of these kids by, by cryogenically freezing them. Ultimately, they, the only kind of pure resistance that they, that, that, that had to manifest in this world was to reclaim their bodies through this, uh, this uh, 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 suicide, group suicide. Uh, so really the question in terms of technology was, how, how are we going to create this twice uh, mediated world. 
particularly going back to what something Arthur said at the beginning, which was that uh, as, uh, as originally planned, the show had no budget. Uh, uh, so, you know, the idea originally of, of media was completely out. Uh, how are we going to create this, this box, this seamless, seductive, beautiful, wall-to-wall ad, uh, which the play uh, was just screaming to be housed in uh, with very little budget. And of course, as it progressed, then, uh, and Chris Janig was producing this play, uh, and since he's the technical director, it fell into his lap as to how, as this play was progressing, as I had no idea there was going to be technology involved with this. I didn't know what it would be, obviously, except that it would be interesting. Uh, but for interesting from my point of view, simply because the students would be asked to think and to create and to develop the underpinnings for a play that Steve would then write. So Chris then had to watch what was going on and the development of the play. And Chris, I'll turn it over to you. At the same time that the actors were part of the workshop, the traditional design team was also part of that group. So. We had a set designer, a costume designer, a lighting designer, a sound designer, and composer who sort of shared the duties of each other's worlds. Um, so they were actually part of the developmental process. They saw what the actors were doing, and so were aware of the sort of raw material that Steve took away to then incorporate into the, the scheme of the play. Um, I think our very first design meeting happened in like late November when we saw sort of the first draft of the play. Um, and it was early in January when we were really into sort of the heart of the design process that it, and we saw a real script. I mean, everything else had been sort of treatments and ideas, but the script suddenly is coming forward and it starts out with the rebooting of a computer as what the audience sees. Um, the design team, with the exception of the lighting designer, who's a faculty member, were all students. The set designer is a, was a second year grad student and was an illustrator from Korea. And this was the first set he was ever going to do. Um, the sound and uh, set designer uh, were all graduating seniors from the undergrad program. So there's a very custom, uh, very young group of people here. and. As we're talking and talking about jumping from location to location and how do we move through all of this stuff, it became clear to me that what we were talking about was not about traditional scenery and traditional lighting. And I, mean, there, I think there had always been an impetus to use sound to give us location, but that wasn't going to be enough. And at that point, again, having budgeted the season with this show being the, um, the one that sort of makes all the other ones possible. Um, I sort of looked at it and went, oh my god, this is not the kind of budget we need for this show. And it was very clear that the way to move through all this stuff was going to be something visual as well. Um, so at, I think, probably the first major design meeting, I said, I think we're talking about projections here. And we're not talking about slide projections. We're talking about projections that have movement. Um, so after that meeting, I went back to the office and started rebudgeting the show um, and looking at how we had done on the earlier 
part of the season and what was left in contingency pockets for the year. This show was the fourth of five shows out of the main stage season. So three of them had been put to bed already. I knew what we had left for the rest of the year. Uh, so basically reallocated another 50% into the show. Um, so basically we went from having roughly $4,000 in terms of material um, to $6,000, almost $7,000 for the budget of the physical production. Uh, the other thing that I did at that point is started sending feelers out to other areas within the university and other people that I knew who deal with projections and media. So I contacted Tom in the Interactive Telecommunications Program. I contacted NYU Center for Advanced Technology. I contacted people at um, what is used to be referred to as Brooklyn Tech, which is um, New York City Technical College, which has a stage technology program in it, and just said, I think we're going into a place that might be really cool to work. The play is not totally solidified. It's a great time to get involved with this process. We have another design meeting a week from now. Would you be interested in joining us? And I've got responses from everybody, and Tom joined our pro uh, the, the process. A woman by the name of Kate Brem, who's a puppeteer who works for the Center for Advanced Technologies for the University joined us. And then we came back to the design process at the second design meeting with a whole group of people now who had media and digital technology experience to join the process. Yeah, I think that one of the things in our preliminary discussion, the, the important thing is to have people around who have experience in this area, as you well know, simply because it enters their mind in a different way than it, it does in the traditional set design, lighting design, sound design way. People who have had media experience so that they're thinking in those terms and they're aware of the equipment and what is possible uh, here. And um, Tom, at what point, this is the point at which you entered the picture? Yeah, uh, well, one of the things that, uh, that Chris uh, probably failed to mention is that Knowing that he didn't have much budget for it, he also worked with uh, Rob Charm. Um, because what I think the first email I got said, we have half a script and no budget. Do you want to do it? And, uh, he knew that uh, I had done uh, a good bit of theater uh, before I had come to the Interactive Telecommunications program and hadn't done it for a while. and was kind of looking to do a show. And uh, so I said, yeah, why not? Um, and a lot of the early part of the process for me and for Kate um, was really about, first of all, coming in to see what was going on, uh, get a sense of the play, and also about um, introducing what was possible, uh, what possibilities there were for media, because we, one of the things, as, as Fritz and, and Steve and Chris started talking, is they had some ideas for what they wanted to do. They had, um, there were a lot of things in the script that read um, as if uh, they had written it down to say, put it there, we'll figure out how to do it later. And so our first role was to say, well, we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. Um, and uh, so a lot of our early meetings had less, I think, to do with theme as to do with what can you pull off on stage in some ways. Um, but how, how, how do you create a visual, uh, a digital world visually on stage? I mean, that, that, that was the real uh, uh, challenge at first. How to think digitally. 
Uh, and it, it took it took me a while to sort of get my head thinking correctly. But once we did, you know, we really made very quick progress. Uh, for example, uh, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Chris. I think you mentioned the first page of the play states that the you know the, uh, the computer booting up. So you know we are in this computer, and then there's really no mention of that anywhere else in the script. But yet, obviously, we're still in this virtual tour. So what does this mean? Well, it means you know you have to think through. Uh, what that means from scene to scene to scene. Uh, a couple of my favorite uh, solutions, uh, and Thomas is really instrumental in sort of, you know, gently refocusing me towards, you know, a digital head uh, uh, for my analog sensibility. Uh, uh, but a couple of my favorite solutions were, there was one scene, I don't know if we can get a you know, slide up here, the, I'm looking to scene A, the, uh, the, the, the dorm room. Uh, there's a, one, of the, uh, one of the scenes is a sort of a mock uh, Romeo and Juliet balcony scene, in which uh, you have uh, our two lovers speak to each other, uh, not not on a balcony, but actually from a dorm room. The girls in her dorm room, surrounded by some of her other roommates, talking out a window. Uh, uh, so, what's the solution to that? Well, the digital solution to that, uh, there, there's the big picture, is that we're in the dorm room. Uh, the, the window. Uh, downstage left where the girl in the, in the orange skirt is. There's, there's no real window. There's an imaginary window. She's looking out. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, the young man is upstage right, uh, uh, being lit there in the orange and yellow, uh, looking up to her. Uh, but also, there's a live feed. There's a camera on his face, and there's a pop-up window that, that comes up. A Windows, you know, like a computer Windows pop-up window that popped up when he came on, and then that live feed is being projected there. So you have, you know, the, the, the digital uh, solution. Uh, so is he behind a script? He's behind script. Correct. Correct. One of the, the things that uh, I think was probably most enjoyable for all of us is that um, everybody on the team was very used to thinking about uh, sort of traditional projections, thinking about static images, thinking about graphics, and to some degree thinking about movies as well. Um, but as we went along, a lot of our discussion was really around how do we sort of morph all those things and how do we play on some of the metaphor that the computer industry had sort of taken over anyway. The, this window one is, is, again, one of my favorite examples, too, because um, as we're reading the scene, um, you know, the, the window just jumped out of me. I was like, we have to do a pop-up window. Um, and uh, the other thing I think that, that really uh, came out in the script quite a bit that we didn't quite figure out how to do until fairly uh, uh, after some of the initial discussions was there are so many references in the script to product, to brand, to logo. And um, of course, in the metaphor of, of this being inside the computer, we would have seen them all as pop-up windows. Um, flash. And as, you know, little flash uh, bits. And as we went along, Fritz uh, really um, started to shape this as you know, a spine and he said, well, we have to keep this in. We have to find ways to make this work. So, um, anyone talk about that anymore? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we have. Do we have a slide of any flash? Uh, there, were, there were no fewer than, I think, uh, 60 <coughs> product references in the play, uh, in a 90-page you know, play. Uh, and with a couple of exceptions, every one of those products, uh, when they were mentioned, uh, you know, we would literally send a projection of the uh, of the ad uh, 
everything from Rolaids to Prozac uh, to uh, Life Serial uh, and on and on and on. Uh, it, it, would, uh, it would project on one of the numerous uh, screens on stage. And the action would just continue. And so it, it created this, you know, this sense uh, of a world which you just can't get away from that. And the ads are even ignored. It's just, it's just constantly uh, with us, even as really important, intimate uh, things are going on. People don't stop them. And people don't notice them. They're just omnipresent, uh, immensely effective. Uh, though difficult to create. Uh, essentially, we had this one student uh, who, who learned the software, and that's what he did this, this spring semester. He, he created Flash. Uh, ben, we're here for this, and a little bit more. Uh, yeah, we should mention Ben Kaiser, who, uh, in addition to Peyton, one of our co-designers, because he was just so good that his sensibility inserted itself into, into everything we were doing. Um, and because he was also very talented with uh, both um, thinking about visual design for the theater, and He's done a lot of a lot of digital work as well. He's done some some movie editing and so forth, um, and that sort of brings up one uh, one of the things perhaps we should get into a bit is how the whole process of editing became part of the process of rehearsal of editing and shooting and so forth. Mm. Um, we um, as we started to put all this together, uh, you know, we, we kept saying, well, there's there's a lot of graphics to be created, and there's there's a few video clips to be created and so forth. It wasn't really until we all sat down at the end of it that we went, you know, in addition to rehearsing a full 90-minute play, we also pretty much had to produce and edit a 90-minute movie, um, or the equivalent thereof. And um, they had to be uh, in sync with each other. Um, so, for example, we had many scenes during the play that were, uh, the actors would be uh, videotaped previously, and it would be as if they were live somewhere else. Um, and so we shot these, what, about a third of the way through the rehearsal process? Yeah, a full month uh, before we opened. <coughs> yeah, and um, so we would, and then of course they'd be inserted into the production. And what we really found was that it changed the rhythm of the performances profoundly because where they were at the rehearsal process and where they were at the end had changed very, very much. Um, and we had done that mainly for production reasons. We knew we needed time for editing, we needed time for programming and so forth. Um, but at the same time, it would have been ideal had we shot those the day before the play or two days before the play. Um, so one thing we really learned as we went along was how to do sort of just-in-time editing um, and just-in-time production of, of graphics. And it came close. I think we didn't quite match it. Yeah. The, 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 hardest, the hardest thing is with the, uh, is the, the film acting. Uh, there, was one, there was one point in the play where the uh, <coughs> uncle Spam, uh, the head of our world, uh, and the, the president, if you will, uh, do you have a picture of Uncle Spam? Uh, <coughs> I thought I was saying that. There you go. Oops. There's the only one. There's uh, Uncle Spam is giving a speech to, to America, or to our world. Uh, about terrorist activities and, and chatter that's being picked up. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's, that is, uh, that, that, that was filmed, right, uh, in, in, uh, at, his, at his desk. Uh, this is a full page and a half monologue, uh, which is, you know, not uncommon in a theatrical context, but very, very unnatural, uh, uh, un uh, un uh, un uh, un normal in a, in a film context. 
and when we shot it, he was so far ahead of the rest of the cast, we were going, wow, this is amazing, this is extraordinary. Uh, but then when we got into tech with the footage, it was, it was simply slower. It was slower than the rest of the play. You know, it needed to be goosed a little bit. And of course, you know, we would have had to uh, call them a shoot day, which we didn't have time for, and blah, blah, uh, But that was really the only one. I think everything else that we were able to fudge and scrape and all, uh, and it worked quite well. And ultimately, it was important that this was filmed, that we couldn't just set up another room where he was being filmed and shot live, because the, the trick of it was that everybody thought they were watching it live, and he walks on stage with them and starts watching the video with them. So clearly, it was not live. Um, so it was not something that could just simply be solved in another way. I'm wondering if uh, uh, Chris, you and Tom could talk about the actual physical setup and the screens and the, and the technological of it. And then we'll move to Meg on how she managed all of this so beautifully. <laughs> um, for this show, we had four video projectors. Uh, where you see Uncle Spam was both a scram and a roll drop RP screen, rear projection, uh, projection surface. Uh, then when we wanted to, that RP roll drop could actually roll out of the way and then farther upstage, another 16 feet upstage of that was a secondary RP screen so that we had effectively three types of layering there. We could project on the scrim, we could project on a roll drop, and we could project on a, another screen all the way upstage. Downstage of that, you might have noticed that there were two, there was a door, stage right and stage left. Those doors would flip out, and plexiglass panels um, would flip out from them that we sanded the back of the plexiglass, and it acted as, again, a, a rear projection surface so that it looked like a plasma screen. So we referred to those as plasma screens. And for $26 worth of plexiglass as opposed to $26,000 worth of plasma screen. Uh, then overhead were two 30-inch television monitors. Uh, there were two live feed cameras on all of this stuff. and. All of that material was being run by four, four, yep. four Macintosh computers running a software program called Production Designer, and plug Wet Electric because they gave us this stuff for next to nothing. Um, and the other software program was a program called Isadora that is used for um, live editing, live, live projection. So we were able to project all of that onto four projection surfaces, two television monitors, um, two cameras, and then gigabytes of uh, digital data that was on those computers. What was the first <coughs> program? Uh, it's, it's called Production Designer. It's by a, a company called Wet Electric. It's, it's really a, a program meant to coordinate all of the queuing um, in addition to running digital like wave files and, and um, little video clips and stuff like that, it actually can send MIDI, for those of you who know anything about this, it can send MIDI signals to lighting boards, to sound boards, and all that sort of stuff, so that you could have one computer running everything. So were you running on an airport network? Were you hardwired, or were they all synced to the same clock and running simultaneously? We ended up keeping each aspect of the design separate. We had all of the media as one operator. 
running all of those projectors and televisions and cameras as one. Lighting ran separately, sound ran separately. Uh, I think the, the strength of production designer is if you were going to go into a long run situation or if you were in a themed park kind of situation where you only want one operator all the time. But because of the shortness of our, we, we had a week to test this, basically. Um, we had to keep all of those en entities separate so that each designer was communicating with their own operator. That said, within the projection um, network, they were all just on one uh, wired network. And uh, production designer is set up such that it can um, have one master machine and several slaves. So we had one master production designer machine slaving two others, and then it was sending MIDI data to the uh, Isadora machine to run the Isadora machine. Um, the reason we were using two different pieces of software wasn't because we were masochistic. It had more to do with the fact that um, while production designer is a great tool for playing back pre-made media, um, it's not very good at handling live uh, video or at morphing live video in any way. And we had a lot of effects where we wanted to do that. We had, um, we really wanted to play with this whole idea of the, the live body versus the mediated image. And so we had to do that through some other tool. And Isadora was the perfect tool for it. So a lot of our time was spent figuring out how to get the two to talk to each other, how to get the two to play nice, and how to get good looking images out of them both. Um, and in the end, it, it worked out fairly well. Um, I think, again, going through the process that we found about 18 things we go next time. Um, but uh, overall, it worked quite well. Um, one of the one of the other of the scenes that's sort of worth mentioning here. Um, uh, can I just go through some of these? Yeah, why don't you go through that, Tom? Sure. This and then we'll turn it over to Meg to talk about <coughs> the difficulties of coordinating all. This is uh, top of the show. Feel free to jump in and narrate anything you want. This is top of the show with our, our standard our world image. And, um, we started out this place sort of saying we want people to get this idea that it's just um, static projection. So originally there was just you know, no slides. But as we went along, we ended up with more and more complex um, graphics going on. So for example, this is our commissary where as the actors are discussing what they want from the, uh, the virtual lunch lady who pops up where the bowl of soup is, um, their menu choices run by on the screen down below. Um, so that, you know, as they're, as they're uh, going along with the action, the, uh, the media plays along with them sort of seamlessly. Um, this was one of the pop-out screens. Um, this one I think Chris deserves a, a round of applause for coming up with the cheapest possible way to make plasma screens. Um, it worked fairly well. Um, this was uh, the sampling of the board, right? Mm -hmm. um, in this case, we've got sort of th this is Uncle Spam is Mr. Peanut. Several layers of, of things going on because, in addition to his presentation over on the side, the estimate there, we've got the board members who are also uh, virtualized upstage of him and then him and his uh, minions downstage. Um, of course, we have to do a little song there. Um, the happenings. Uh, here we were um, doing a little work to see if we could find a way to, to sync the video, uh, the uh, graphics card upstage with sound and lights. 
Um, probably our most technically challenging moment, even though it didn't quite seem like it uh, in the production. Um, one of the themes that was running through the whole play was surveillance. Um, and in Spam's office, of course, we had to have a wall of monitors. Uh, so we projected a wall of monitors. And then within each of these windows, you've got uh, different uh, live video or different video feeds running. Um, all four of them panned and on separate loops. Um, at one point, we talked about putting in a live uh, feed for one of them. But this is where we found ourselves saying, you know, we could put that in, but the moment itself was only about 10 seconds long, and it would have been kind of gratuitous. Uh, so we ended up cutting back there. Um, a little more of the video feed there. Uncle Spanish Cat and Crunch. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, the uh, Romeo and Juliet moment. Um, this. Uh, Getting along with the theme of protest, uh, in one scene, one of the actors uh, going by uh, one of the ubiquitous smiley faces defaces the smiley face. And so what we did here is he walks by the smiley face, and as he lifts, the smiley face becomes a frown, and as he punches the eyes, they uh, get blacked out. Um, and so the, the graphics followed along with his action as we went there. Um, Was that synced to him? Uh, it was he was sick to it. Yeah, pre-done. It was pre-done and he timed it. Uh, we watched him a few times in rehearsal to try and get the least halfway done. Um, another one of our multi-layer moments here. Um, we've got Asia upstage, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, this um, was another of those moments where we were playing with uh, the live feed. Um, can you describe this? Yeah, this was another. This one really, really came late to us in terms of digi uh, you know, picking digitally. Uh, close to the end of the play, there's a selection scene. The, uh, the female character there on the stage left is Nike, head of the Nike Corporation, uh, with a vested interest in all these youths becoming forever young to buy her sneakers. Uh, uh, and she's trying to seduce uh, the gentleman on stage right uh, to stop his, his, his activities, his resistance activities. Uh, and, you know, I kept thinking, well, it just can't be a straight production scene. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Finally, uh, I said, it has to be virtual. I said, Tom, what does that mean? He said, webcam girls. Uh, uh, <laughs> I never heard that. But Tom knew about that. <laughs> uh, so what she's holding in her hand there is not a microphone, but it's indeed one of those little webcam cameras, uh, which is on a microphone stand. And that's a live feed. That's actually his face. Uh, and, sh and so he, you know, we set up the convention of him looking out, out and seeing what's projected upstage of him uh, uh, so that she seduces him, uh, again, once removed, it's, uh, once mediated. As we went along, she uh, yeah. did play the camera in every possible way. And that's all live. That's all her. And she's completely in control. Mm. Um, Towards the end of the play, the, uh, the uh, youth start to take over the media system as part of their protest. And so, of course, uh, here we ended up incorporating footage that would look as if it were uh, homemade uh, cheap video. Um, so we've got the live actor on stage who's doing a sort of very polished, finished off scene contrasted with, with the, uh, the homemade stuff upstage. Um, and then that sort of gets contrasted with the uh, the homemade actors 
later look once she's been polished by our world. Um, and the suicide. And then suicide. This would be you. Right. Well, uh, you know, like I said, they in order to in the logic of the play, in order to resist uh, this nefarious plot to claim their bodies, they have to uh, uh, reclaim their bodies uh, uh, and commit suicide. But again, rather than committing suicide live, they're 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 using the technology of our world, uh, and they hack into the virtual tour. So this this all the technology which has been used very seamlessly and uh, using sort of a Microsoft Word color palette uh, 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 suddenly now uh, is completely you know turned on end and we have this this this, this interjection this hack in that these students have created uh, to project their black and white suicides uh, uh, into the face of our world and one of the things that happens as we go along with the suicides, uh, of course, is Uncle Sam here trying to prevent the audience from seeing the suicides, um, was that the suicides were never shown real on stage. Um, and it sort of brought to, to mind one of the points that Steve and, and uh, Chris had talked about early on, that, that um, this world is seamless to the point that even resistance ends up being part of the machine somewhat. Um, so these final moments where we see the, uh, the students upstage um, in their uh, their sort of suicidal moment, that in itself is a is a sort of spectacle, a, a conscious spectacle for what's going on in our world, but still a spectacle within the uh, technological system. Um, so we're never really sure if those are their actual bodies that died or not. And of course, we finish off the play with our corporate heroes telling us that everything is okay. Uh, what I'd like to do now is move to uh, Meg to tell us uh, the process that she went through in terms of so beautifully managing all of this. Uh, it helped that she, of course, was there from day one, as was, what's interesting, everybody here was here from day one except Tom. Tom came in later, we talked about this a few days ago or yesterday, and he said that I actually thought it was good that he came in at a later point in the process because he could look at it uh, with uh, a little more distance and to see where they were at at that point, which was interesting to me. I assumed that it would have been better if he'd been there from day one. Meg. Yeah, so, well, I think the most important thing was uh, trying to figure out with using this media that no one had used before what were going to be the new problems that we needed to address in the process, what were going to be the things we needed to work around. And I think one of the most important things for me as a manager was trying to figure out, you know, in addition to all the rehearsals and design meetings and everything, trying to coordinate these outside projects that we needed, the filming and the photography and all that stuff. And, and I think we did have um, some ways that we would have done that a little differently. And, and I think it's important that if you're going to do that uh, situation, you really want people who uh, know film well, uh, know how that needs to be coordinated, and uh, make sure that everyone's working together and, and knows how to accomplish that quickly and efficiently and uh, artistically. So that was definitely a, a new challenge for me as a manager. Um, the other thing was just learning about the media. You know, Fritz didn't know much about how the media worked, and I didn't know. and Chris knew a little, and of course we had Tom to help us out. And so 
uh, you know, as a manager, I think that it's important to know what you're cueing, what you're working with. I know a lot about lighting. I know some about sound. So I feel comfortable when I'm running a performance uh, that I will be okay if I need to troubleshoot something in the middle of everything. So it was important for me and I think important for the director to really understand uh, what, what the media was made of. Uh, I was very lucky uh, that one of the designers, student Ben Kitely, he was not only a part of the design process, but he ended up being the uh, media operator during the run of the show. So uh, when there was a problem during a performance between the two of us, we could coordinate how we were going to solve that. Um, let's see, what else do I have? I have my list, my efficient list. Um, and I think one of the other things was because we had never used media before, tech time became a very different process. You know, usually you just throw in lights and sound, you run it a few times and you're good to go. But because, you know, with media not only are you introducing it to the actors, some of whom had never seen that before and needed time to work with that, uh, not only are you trying to coordinate that with light and sound, but, you know, media, unlike light and sound for the most part, you know, it, it gets very temperamental sometimes. You know, the computer would crash occasionally, you know, and that those are things that we never really had to deal with before. So we ended up being okay at the end with tech time, but you definitely need to be planning ahead and making sure that you've given yourself with this new tool enough time to get the job done and, and be comfortable with it for the show. Um, and also because the media was sometimes temperamental, uh, you know, it became a problem during the show. I had 382 cues in a two-hour show, which if anyone's ever run a board, it's incredible. So um, it actually ended up, because I had great operators and a great cast to work with, it ran very smoothly for the most part, but there were a couple times where the computer did crash. And because media is a character in itself in this show, you had to figure out uh, how to reintroduce it, how you're going to work that in, just like you would with a light cue or anything. So um, it was definitely a challenging part of the process. And with the cues, it was important for me to keep the lights, the sound, and the media as separate systems, to not have production designer running the whole thing. Because you're cueing off so many different elements, you know, if, if one thing were to go wrong, that would screw up, you know, all the different elements. So uh, it was really helpful to have those all in separate things. So. And, um, you know, pretty much the acting part of it, the rehearsal part of it, it was like a normal play. It was very smooth. So, you know, that wasn't really an issue. Um, but it was definitely managing the technical aspects and being patient and learning about uh, all the new media that made it run smoothly. I can mention time. A timeline is, I think, really significant for a production like this. You know, normally, in a university situation, we rehearse for six weeks uh, because students can only rehearse in the evenings and on weekends. So, uh, uh, of course, the design process takes place before that and during that. Uh, this process, which from my terms was very long, seven months from the first meeting, is indeed extraordinarily short considering that within that time, the play was written, the play was cast, rehearsed, uh, everything was put together is an exceptionally short period of time. So working ahead on something like this is is really important and really significant. Uh, do you want to talk about the timeline, any of you, at some point in terms of, I'm sure, and as a result, from an acting point of view, not a, I don't know technologically, but from an acting point of view, this was one of the most finished 
productions we've ever done in terms of the actors, because the actors were there from the very beginning. The process, it was created by them, around them, and with them. And so I've never seen such confidence on undergraduate actors as these actors demonstrated because of this wonderful luxury of time, which you may only be able to get in a university situation with the actors uh, or in a company situation. Well, you know, that was to me the, the most surprising part of this. I, I, I was fully prepared uh, that I would have to give over this play to these actors. Uh, it's not usually, you know, the traditional way of writing plays, I go off and I cook something up and then I cast the play after readings and workshops and, and that sort of thing. But I, I had never anticipated then the, the next step, giving it over to designers and their voices being as important dramaturgically uh, and shaping the script uh, as it was. And this, you know, this happened very late in the process. This was January. The end of January was the first design, design meeting that I attended. And it, cha you know, it changed the script. The production was in April. Yeah. Right, April 1st was, was when we opened. Um, so it, to me, it's a breakneck pace to, to write a you know, two-hour play uh, that fast and keep writing it up until you know, through March 31st, I was still writing the play. Well, we were having design days in January without a second act. I mean, we, we were designing the play based on the first act, and meanwhile, it's saying to me, well, yeah, go ahead and bring in the monitors now, that uh, we seem to have the monitors. Right. Mm -hmm. Write it in. Well, I think part of the reason why why I felt that we were talking about projections in January was because we didn't have a second act. I mean, you can't build scenery for something that doesn't exist two days before it happens. But it is possible to create a, a digital image. I mean, I'm discounting how much time it takes to do that. But a one person can do that as opposed to a drawing and then a shop and then a, and then a, and then. A, that's also one of the things I think that was nice about being able to work with um, with uh, computer tools as opposed to working, say, with film or, or with any kind of uh, strictly linear media was that um, the, 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 the editing process was a lot quicker because, you know, Steve would throw a new draft out and be like, well, okay, let's try this instead, you know, and um, so we could get something together fairly quick to look at, and if it didn't work, we went back and changed it fairly you know, quickly. So, it was actually it was a nice process to do it that way. Um, that we I think we, we all sort of felt at the end that holy crap we all sort of made a play together. Yeah. Uh, there was one sort of scheduling serendipity that happened with this show is that it didn't go into tech until the week after spring break, and so everybody who was involved with the show could take spring break and really make things happen. The the media people were pretty much around the clock for that week, because at that point, everything had been loaded into the theater. We had all the projectors, or more or less all of the projectors, we had everything there so that for seven days, Kate and Tom and Ben were at those computers creating the cues. And in a lot of ways, the, the, the media stuff is in sort of its infancy relative to theater. I mean, relative to what each of those programs do, they're fine, mature programs, but then to say, now let's use them for a live production, that doesn't exist. I mean, it's sort of like going back 15 years in terms of sound and dealing with reel-to-reel -reel tape decks and going back 25 years to two-scene preset boards and lighting. I mean, it takes a while to make those things happen. And we had the luxury of that week to create the cues 
so that when it was time to put it together, we had really sort of well along rough drafts of every cue media-wise in the computer so that when we got to that point, we could actually make it happen and not wait six hours for the thing to happen. But one thing I think that was, was kind of, um, I was very glad of, uh, that we couldn't have done without more rehearsal time. Um, when we mentioned the webcam idea, uh, I said to Fritz, well, you're going to need to rehearse with this, so let me get you a, a, a cheap camera and a TV. And they took a camera and a TV into rehearsal, and she worked with that in rehearsal. And when I saw them on stage for the first time with it, I was amazed because she was doing things that she couldn't have been able to do visually with the camera and see the screen behind her without a lot of rehearsal process. And I think that, to me, was, was one of my most exciting moments, knowing that in addition to throwing these massive loads of technology things at the end, we could sketch things out in rehearsal. We could say, well, all we need is a camera and a, and a monitor. We can, we can play with that idea in rehearsal. If it doesn't work, we can throw it away. Um, my feeling was to, to look for more moments where we could do that kind of sort of spontaneous work in rehearsal as well. Just before we turn this over to questions from the audience, because our time is, is running out, Fritz, you did say something to me the other day I thought was very interesting, is now that you've gone through this process, and I think this may have been the first time that you had encountered uh, media and dig digital process to this depth, that it is a part of your thinking now. Can you expand on That being said, one of the things that I did like about the show and what a lot of people liked about the show was that the media was used in such a way that was not gratuitous. Uh, um, you know, sometimes, you know, when one, you know, uses media in, in a world that doesn't require it to be there, it does seem gratuitous. So there is that, you know, there's always going to be that, uh, that potential pitfall. Yeah, it will pitfall there. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree with you, and I think that was Steve's genius in this, in making this work uh, seamlessly together because I've always hated media in shows because the show stops why we see somebody talking on television it's over here, it's over here. This was integrated. It was all a part of it and so it didn't stop the actors. It didn't stop the action. It didn't stop what was going on and yet I was absolutely aware of the whole thing all the time. I remember seeing a, a workshop of a John Jessamine play I don't know, geez, maybe 97, 98 for the time Yes, over here. I'm interested in the development process between the writer and the actor and the director and the actual process of the person with the accomposition. Did you record those? How did, how did that? Fritz, how did this process start? 
Yeah, again, we, we had we had our topic, and I made it very clear. You know, our our model for this uh, uh, was not the sort of Jean Claude Van Italy model, where you know, from the '60s, where they would actually the, the, the writer really would go with the with the scribe, you know, transcribing the actual uh, improvisation. I mean, it, our model is much more the uh, joint stock model uh, that the New York Times place has come out of. Uh, whereby you really collectively explore a topic, uh, theatrically explore ideas and issues and characters, but the writer is under no obligation whatsoever to take any of those characters, any of those situations, anything uh, that the writer is only obligated to return after three months with a play uh, that, that includes good roles for all the actors. Uh, uh, so no, we were not, it's not like we were, oh my God, this is a good idea, let's, let's explore this idea more, let's explore these characters more. We were really just exploring various different kinds of resistances. Uh, we got very interested in what I would call, what I call, uh, dysfunctional resistance. Partly because, you know, a lot of this is a reaction to, to terror, to 9-11, and we were thinking, well, there's a lot of that in our own, uh, uh, you know, experience, uh, whether it be uh, Timothy McVeigh or the Columbine kids, uh, uh, you know, these sort of uh, dysfunctional, uh, Manifestations of resistance. You know, it's almost as if in, you know this, this this world of ours is so this American world is so seamless and so powerful that it breeds these dysfunctional resistances. And we spent a lot of time exploring those. Uh, well, you know, so we set up we set up a, <laughs> we sort of follow your nose. You know, I uh, I, I read the book uh, Fight Club over the summer, uh, and that seemed really interesting to me as, as sort of a, a, a model. Uh, yeah, uh, I brought in the chapter, I think, a little, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, we created what I call alter egos, you know, because that's one of the things Fight Club is, is, is based on, right? There's, there's the guy with there's the nerdy guy, and then he becomes his, his Brad Pitt alter ego, right? Uh, who can do anything. Uh, uh, and, you know, we explored who the, 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 the wimp, who's the actor who plays the Nazi Brad Edward Norton. Yes, the Edward Norton. Uh, uh, character uh, uh, and, all, and all the sort of personal issues and problems those kids had in relation to them. So this is all your alter ego. What would you do? Uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time reading the pipe bomb. Remember the pipe bomb? It was about a year ago now. Uh, the kid out in the Midwest from the University of Wisconsin who was uh, uh, setting off bombs in mailboxes. And if, if you looked at a map, uh, he was creating a smiley face. You know, um, on America, uh, he didn't even complete the project before he was caught. Uh, uh, you know, we uh, we went on to pro-anorexic websites and explored that as 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 a, as, as a dysfunctional form of resistance. Uh, you know, and then we just sort of set up all kinds of various improvisations. I I I I can't remember what what exactly. We did uh, a silent vigil to uh, to Ground Zero. Yeah. Um, uh, we did a lot of forums where uh, each person was assigned a character and they had to sort of uh, encourage the others to take their platform oh, in sort of a talk show Each actor, yes. And the designers and the management team were also observing this whole process so they kind of could. Before we ask your question, do you want to make any more comments about this? Because you had to come up with good roles for 10 actors. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was that that was the heaviest burden for me. Well, that was my next question. Yeah, it, it's I wanted to know what the 
what the actual written play looked like? Or was it closer to a screenplay than to an actual play? No, it was real and play. what your input was in terms of Well, I, you know, my, my only task was to write 10 good parts. Uh, if you have to do that, can't kill off a character for the, the plot, so uh, you make some allowances for, for action, and it's not the typical way of, of writing a play. It's not. It wouldn't have been uh, my choice. You know, I, I like smaller. In, in the regional theater, we're, we're uh, encouraged to write smaller uh, cast plays anyway. Uh, I didn't know if I could come up with ten equal or near equal parts. But that was what that was what I concentrated on, and I think I did succeed in that. And it had to be based on their personalities. I mean, that was why they sort of fit into uh, in why their final performance was so strong. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, it was derived, it was distilled from their personality. Were you present at the rehearsal? I was I was present for the entire workshop in September. Then I went off. I was actually working on another play, but I went off and wrote the script based on these improvisations. Uh, the, the last night of the workshop was uh, a staged event in front of Starbucks on Astro Place. Uh, that that <coughs> was, uh, you guys invited the cast to come up with their own night of workshop. And that was what they chose to do, was they each took on their own character that was resisting something. They all picked something to resist and then encouraged passers-by to resist something. And they ended up with about three or 400 pieces of paper that said resist with a blank on it. And you know, just random people on the street, the public was asked to fill it in. So people would resist their manager or resist email. Resist resistance. Resist resistance. So it, would, it drew a lot of people. There. What Fritz was able to do was truly create a company uh, to cast out of the 1,400 students we have in the department, 10 actors through open auditions that he wanted to work with, and then took those 10 people and formed them into a company that then further was accentuated by, by the play. So then the writer didn't have any input. That's it. Yeah. No. Yeah, you could have I was an audition. Okay. So yeah, I was definitely very good. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how much this actually cost and how accessible this technology is outside of the university setting, particularly to like a small nonprofit or a small production company? Um, we owned two of the video projectors. We borrowed one. Uh, the fourth one by serendipity, again, was sort of like the dean's office called and said, you got $4,000 to buy a projector. It's like, okay, thank you. Um, the Software and the computers and stuff was really a gift from uh, Wet Electric. It probably would have cost somewhere around $4,000 for the rental period. They rented it to us for $1,300 for the three weeks that we needed it. Uh, the monitors were obtained from another department. Um, you know, so when it's all said and done, not counting the purchase of the projector, we spent about $2,800 on the media. Um, had we had to go out and get all of that stuff from zero, probably talking about a $10,000 rental. Um, I think that whenever you are in a situation where your, you know, your budget is zero, you start calling upon favors, and that's what we did as well. Um, and I think that there's a lot, 
I wouldn't be surprised that you know, what electrics gear talking about them like I'm their salesperson. Right? Um, uh, they have stuff down at here. They have stuff with the Worcester Group, and it's not. They make their money by selling this stuff to Universal Studios. So I think that they want to get the materials into the hands of the people who create interesting new things. Um, some of the big um, suppliers of video equipment are more than happy to cut deals with small theater companies. And then you, you know, you hook up with people. And if you bring in a media designer, they're hooked up with a whole group of people as well. Um, it's on a lot of people's day jobs too. Uh, you know, so and so was had done a lot of video editing. So, hey, you want to come join us on this? You know, uh, again, not just people, but but companies uh, are often kind of happy to do these kind of productions because this is where the cool stuff happens for them. You know, um, to do a trade show. You can do a trade show, yeah, and you're going to make a lot of money off of it, but you're not going to make interesting cues um, unless you've got a very adventurous company. So, you know, what Electric has sort of almost approached us and said, hey, do you want to do this? And said, okay. And, um, Isadora was another one where I knew the, uh, the programmer who was also uh, artistic director of, um, what's their company? Troika Ranch. And, um, he was in the middle of writing this software. In fact, he was about to go into production with it himself. And he said, so I need people to play around with this. You want to play around with it? I was like, OK. He's like, I'll give you a discount on it. So I bought the copy for myself, lent it to the department. Um, so it was a lot of that kind of thing. I think we have time for about two more questions. Yes, Bernie. Um, Um, originally, it was budgeted at about $14,000. Okay, so that's what we went into when it was supposed to be the workshop. Um, when it became the next level of stuff, it got bumped up to about $20,000, $21,000. I think you pointed out the very thing that maybe exactly. this play is about. Exactly. <laughs> I thought perhaps yes. I was, but I didn't want to be so. <laughs> Whatever. There was one other question over here, yes. Um, I was wondering if you, guys, you all could speak more to what came up at the, at the very end of the discussion, what you see as the prospects for using other, this, other forms of media in shows that aren't about that, you know, where it's not a media show, but you know, doing, I don't know, Shakespeare, whatever, you know, what are some of the ways that we can integrate more seamlessly into a production? Um, Chris, what was the show we did uh, a few years ago with Tennessee Williams piece? Um, the, the Rich Theater people did a production with us, uh, Tennessee Williams, suddenly last summer, that had uh, I don't know, eight or nine slide projectors and a computer controller and all of that kind of stuff. 
and project it on layers and layers and layers of scrim. Um, but that's what Bob McGrath does. I mean, that's uh, sort of the, the reason of his concept. Brilliantly done, but it did deconstruct the play to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. So it did affect it in a way that, of course, for this play was integrated. And um, I, I think that we're getting into a new technology, a new way of producing. And maybe the best way to deal with this is to create new work that really incorporates this. I think that, if I can just say something too, I think that's, that's very true, but also that um, it's also possible to do these things in I think a, lot, a smaller way than we've done, um, because the language of, of new media, if, if I can steal this from Lovdanovich, is, is part of the language of our world at this point. I mean, you turn on the TV and in sitcoms they're talking about know websites they're talking about you know, various things they've seen and so forth um, that works its way into work whether it takes over an entire production or not um, I see I, I think that there are places for this kind of work to sort of slip in in little tiny pieces both in in new work and in traditional work because the way we look at character now gets shaped as much by MCV as it does by Shakespeare so you work that back in as well. well I think that the Peter Greenway is really interesting as well. I mean, his latest, isn't his latest uh, work? It's, it's a combination of uh, a movie, a website, a novel, and a play. I mean, in order to get the whole picture, you got to see all four. I mean, it's like that kind of thing, you know. And I remember him talking about that ten years ago. That thing, not on like this, people being sure like that's going to happen. And here it is. It's like it's here. I. I'm do we have any more time, Joe, or should we close it now? Okay, I'm sorry to have to end then, but I do thank our panelists. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.